What's up, everybody? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 19 of the Hashishin. As always, thank you for tuning in. Wishing everybody a chill 710. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Roz and Ryan. We'll be talking about rosin consistencies, terpenes, and of course, Ryan's breaking into the industry and now spending some years with Oleo. It's a good one, so stay tuned for that. As always, a huge shout out to our Patreon community who allows us to keep pushing forward with this project. To everybody who's ever contributed towards the podcast, a huge thank you. We like to show our love back to our Patreon community as well. So outside of getting additional content, merchandise, and at times early releases for being part of the Patreon, this month some of our top supporters received some commemorative beans from Manifest Seeds out of Maryland. So a big shout out to them. You can follow them at Maryland underscore Masher, as well as an art print that we put together based on last year's roster, which is exclusive only to the Patreon. So being part of the community definitely has its perks. Check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn you'll have to go to the link directly because patreon has a somewhat blocked since we're cannabis media so you can find the link in our instagram bio shout out to our now three awesome sponsors low temp plates who you can follow on instagram at low temp dot plates rosin evolution who you can follow at Rosin Evolution 100, that's the number 100, and a warm welcome to Pele Polare, which means polar skin in Italian, which totally makes sense because they specialize in insulation. You can follow them on Instagram at Pele underscore Polare, that's P-E-L-L-E underscore P-O-L-A-R-E. No matter if you hand stir or you machine wash, Pele Polare creates thermal jacketing systems for all shapes and sizes from five gallon buckets to 50 gallon barrels. They can accommodate any size. Their thermal jackets allow you to keep liquids colder for longer, in this case meaning less ice. So make the smart yet economical choice and save yourself time, money and effort by visiting their website at pelepolareco.com. Again, that's P-E-L-L-E. P-O-L-A-R-E-C-O.com. Use the savings code THI, again standing for the hashish in to save 5% with them. The code is THI with no spaces in between. Speaking of savings, you definitely don't want to miss out on Low Templates annual 710 sale, which is now live, which will save you up to 15% on all their V2 systems as well as their starter kit bundles. As you know, Low Template manufactures, engineers, and assembles all their gear here in the US, meaning that they not only produce high quality, durable equipment, but they do it all while supporting other American businesses. You can visit them on their website, lowtemp-plates.com. That's L-O-W-T-E-M-P-plates.com. They offer a lifetime warranty on all their gear, meaning that it'll be the first and last press that you'll need to buy. And once their 710 sale is over, you can always save 5% on all their gear using our savings code, the letters THI standing for the hashish in with no spaces in between. And if you are supporting low templates and buying yourself an awesome rosin kit or rosin plate system, definitely use our code a, because we want you to save money and because by using the code low templates becomes aware that our listeners are supporting them, which in turn helps them support us, which helps us keep the podcast rolling. So if you're going to support low templates, please use our savings code, the letters THI, again, standing for the hashish in. 
And last but not least, a shout out to Rosin Evolution. You can visit their website at rosinevolution.com. Anyone out there making rosin, whether it's for personal use or those squishing big batches, you already know the deal. Rosin Evolution has the best quality bags, the fairest prices, the fastest shipping, great customer service. So I know that you're already probably using Rosin Evolution bags, but if you aren't, you definitely should check them out. Again, in order for them to show us love, you need to use our savings code, which has now changed from THI to THI710. So THI710 saves you 5% with Rosin Evolution, which definitely adds up over time. So if you're buying Rosin bags or wash bags, definitely use our code. Again, the letters THI and the number 710 all together saves you 5% with Rosin Evolution. I thank you so much for listening to this and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Today, I'm super excited to be hanging out with Ryan, more commonly known as Rosin.Ryan. What's up, Ryan? How are you doing, man? Good, man. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me over and sitting down with me, man. I really appreciate this. This is really cool. Thank you so much. Of course, man. If you want to follow Ryan on Instagram, his Instagram is at Rosin.Ryan. So I wanted to start with kind of a personal question, Yep. but it's about work. And that's, you know, when you wake up every morning, are you excited to go to work? Yes, I can honestly say that for the first time in my life, I am truly excited to go to work. This is what I moved here to do every morning. Going to see what's at the lab waiting for me is honestly truly exciting to me. So That's awesome. I don't think a lot of people can typically say that, you know. So I saw recently you made a post where you let people ask you questions. And one of the questions was something along the lines of like, I'm thinking about getting into the industry. Should I make my move now, basically? And your answer was something along the lines of, yeah, why not now, you know? So I'm curious if you could kind of elaborate on that based on your experience as somebody who moved here to do that. Yeah, I just feel like if there's something you want to do in your heart and you know that you should make the move and there may be something holding you back. It might not be, you know, as big of a setback as you are making it out to be. And if you really want to make something happen, you should really do it. You should follow your passions. And there's not a day that goes by now that I don't regret moving out here, quitting. I was working at the airport. I was doing good work, but it wasn't something that I love to do. So now looking back, I want everyone to do that same exact thing and just kind of follow their heart and their passions. Working with hash is, I told my parents who didn't even smoke at the time that I was going to move out here and make hash and make this happen. I knew how to love for cannabis and doing that every day. Now I am still grateful every day. So it's been a blessing, serious blessing. Yeah, that's cool, man. So you and I were talking a little earlier and like you just said, you told your parents that you were coming out here to do this specifically. Yep. Right. So what was your first experience with cannabis oil before deciding to make the jump? to do that here? Well, I was a late bloomer with smoking in general. I feel like, you know, I was almost in college when I really started smoking. I got caught by the cops the very first time I ever got high. So that really put a damper on me wanting to smoke. I didn't smoke for a year after the very first time I started smoking. So I was about 18 when I really started smoking every day, but there was something about it, the way it made me feel, the way it made me think about things. I knew instantly that I was passionate about this plant. I was lucky enough to have a buddy that didn't really 
start me out on smoking anything with seeds or stems in it. Like a lot of people started smoking. I was really introduced to what we called crip back in Florida. It was just, it was well grown, homegrown stuff that I was really interested in what these crystals were on the bud, what all these different smells were. It was just something that intrigued me. I started making hash out of a grinder pretty soon after I started smoking, just doing that separation. I remember putting it in the freezer for the first time and noticing how more of these crystals, the trikes would fall off of the plant. And ever since then, I've just been so interested in making hash, making something cleaner than smoking the bud itself. I actually got introduced to hash mostly through BHO. I was going to move here to make BHO. That's what I was interested in, in. That was where all the hype was at the time, making these crystals that I was seeing on Instagram or just making good live resin at the time. Actually, back in the day, this was when Shatter was the only thing that. Okay. Yeah. So Shatter, Shatter mattered. You know what I mean? Everyone was just trying to make clean little slabs and stuff like that. So that's what we were focusing on back in the day. But I wanted to learn how to make live resin with fresh frozen and I had no access to it in Florida. So I told my parents that I wanted to move here to Colorado and they were pretty supportive. I was very lucky and that's what I'm doing now. It's amazing how it's come full circle. Yeah, that's cool. So on this idea of the word hash, you use it in reference to essentially what some people would call keef. And then you also talked to me about taking an extra step and cleaning your keef as well. Exactly. That's kind of where everything started for me is dry sift, the grinder dry sift, trying to clean up that dry sift, smoking it on top of bowls. I felt like that was a cleaner way of smoking. I was always a glass guy. We even way back in the day before I, you know, got into rigs and stuff, it was all about bong rips. It was all about clean bong rips. It was all about not messing with the bud too much with my fingers. Even back in the day, I had this feeling like I needed to get something more out of the plant and it was there for us to take, but I didn't know how to do it just yet. I was just experimenting with little things. But yeah, that's pretty much where my hash journey started. Yeah. Is that before I started, you know, trying to open blast stuff and everyone's making BHO and just trying to figure that whole game out too. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. I was really interested in hydrocarbon extractions way back in the day. This is, I mean, eight, nine years ago now, I'd say. Skillet rigs had just come out. There's all these advances in nail technology and stuff that hadn't even been heard of just yet. But open blasting in a tube was around and just experimenting with blasting head, heady nugs. Pretty much I would get a head stash of nugs and instead of smoking the flower, I would blast it and that would last me the week. And then the next weekend I do the same thing. And I was just doing this for my own little personal use. This wasn't for selling. This wasn't for right. anything besides trying to replicate what I was seeing on the beginnings of Instagram back in the day. This was 2012, 11, even. I just wanted to replicate what I was seeing done in California on a really small scale. So Yeah, and I'm curious, because it was real new and information was scarce, where were you getting your information from? That's where I think I've started this whole open book thing on Instagram where people can ask me questions I really don't feel like I'm trying to hide too much. I want to be transparent in the tech. But back in the day on Instagram, I remember there would be a few guys on YouTube really talking about just tech. Oh, God, I, I wish I could remember who that kid with the BHO was back in the day. But we'd watch all these videos and just try to replicate what these guys were doing on a tiny scale, just trying to make the cleanest stuff we could because I didn't want to smoke anything with butane in it. I didn't want to smoke anything that wasn't, you know, pure. 
But right. I was trying to get the most out of these little cured head stash nugs. I was just in love with seeing what came out of each strain that we were getting. We didn't even know if the strains we were getting were the actual strains. This is Florida buds. Yeah, so that's the other thing. Everyone just called it Crip or, you know, some chronic. But yeah, that's where the journey started is actual BHO is what I moved here for. And switching to solventless was like a whole different journey that once that started, I really felt like I was back at the beginning, just learning all over again. It was really neat. So when you finally made the move out here, you were also telling me earlier that it was quite difficult for you to find a position in any kind of capacity. Yes, yes. I think it's really hard to just dive in. You're expecting to get a job. You have this vision of you making hash and doing all this stuff. But the truth is, I knew nothing at all. I was going about things all wrong. I was trying to talk to people at dispensaries and be like, where do I go to you know, get a job? They had no idea. I wasn't getting in touch with the labs. <laughs> I didn't know anybody at all. So my best friend, my roommate now, actually hit me up one day, told me there was an opening for this huge lab out here in Colorado. I can't really mention the name now. We've since split and become Olio. But I got a job starting as a packager, and that was all that I needed to kind of get into the industry. That's I was so stoked just to do that, just to be able to work with some BHO and to be able to package that all day. I was so excited. Before that, I was working the night shift here in Colorado, going straight from work, from working all through the night from 10 p.m. to 6 in the morning, going doing trim jobs for five to six hours. I would only sleep four to five hours a day. I was just trying to learn as much about growing in the plant. And I just felt that getting in there and working with everybody that was clearly way more knowledgeable than me and getting my hands-on experience was the only thing I needed to do at that time. And that's all I was focused on. I didn't care that I wasn't getting sleep. I was just so stoked to be working around Bud for the first time. I could never grow in Florida. So being able to do this was just mind-blowing to me, honestly. Yeah, it sounds like a cool experience, but not without its challenges. And, you know, so from the packaging department, you eventually made your way up, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, started packaging with Tukes. I'm going to mention Tukes a few times in this because he's the man. He is pretty much, he's the guy making all of our ice hash. So we have to be, we're a team pretty much. What he's washing in there all day, I'm pressing and we are worked, we're linked so close to the grow too. We all have to be a team. So I'm going to mention him a few times in this. But yeah, we started the very first day packaging together. We started on the same day. We went from packaging to kind of selling what we were packaging. We were doing sales. I was horrible at it. I'm awful <laughs> at talking to people sometimes. We went from sales to kind of linking off. I was really interested in BHO at the time. He was way more knowledgeable with solventless than I was at that time. He was smoking bubble for years, it sounded like, where I was mainly focused on smoking live resin. He was familiar with washing. He was familiar with even more dry sift techniques than I was at the time. So when we started making hash for Olio, I really was trying to get into closed loop hydrocarbon extraction. He was, you know, wanting to learn how to wash. Okay. And at the time, it was planned that he was going to do the washing and the rosin pressing. We did that for a little bit. He learned how to wash with a machine. And we learned basic rosin techniques with a hair straightener. And I know it sounds crazy, but that's all there was at the time. What year was this? This is 2016, 15. Okay. Yeah, four or five years ago. So yeah, I did the BHO, the hydrocarbons for Olio for almost a year, seven or eight months, I'd say, before it was kind of 
brought to our attention that, hey, we might need somebody to press while somebody's washing all day. And that's the first day that I learned about squishing. And ever since then, I've been working on the rosin for oleo, pretty much. Yeah, that's cool. I'm curious because I haven't talked to anybody really much about this. And since you've worked in the department for a while, can you talk a little bit about the hydrocarbon extraction world? Oh, yeah, of course. It's more scientific where I feel like the washing and the rosin pressing, you're, it's more hands-on. It's more, not more hands-on in the sense of like what you're actually doing with your hands, but you're seeing the product come out visually as you're doing a wash, you're washing the trikes in the water. You can see a dumper a few minutes into a wash. You can see that water just filling up, clouding up. When you're running a BHM machine, you're running machine. It's, you know, it's a scientific process. You've got, you're dealing with a flammable gas. You got to do things right. It's a totally different ball game in that sense of how I approach it. A day washing, it's tedious. It's hard work on your back and stuff if you're hand washing like that. But in no way are you worried that something could, you know, go wrong if you turn a lever a certain way or do any of that. But as far as actual working with hydrocarbons back in the day, I loved it. The way we did it was so clean. We're not going to release anything without zero PPM. I still back hydrocarbons. I'm not one of those solventless guys that thinks it's evil. It's just a personal choice for people. In my body, I don't want to smoke live resin all the time. Will I take a dab of live resin if I know where it's coming from? Of course. But I'm just more of a solventless you know, type guy. It's my personal preference. So, yeah. yeah. And in regards to like machinery, you know, how much more oh, yeah. complex is that? Oh, yeah. And uh, not even cost wise. Yeah. The complexity of the machines and everything like that's a whole nother level. But I think in the future, we're going to, I mean, it's already the solventless game's already stepping up in the machinery that we're using like that. But it's still nowhere near what you're spending on hydrocarbon equipment just to have a C1D1 room. Just to have that room and everything installed, that's a whole different ball game. I know a cold room setup is, you know, its thing. But in my opinion, getting a floor drain installed and getting a cold room set up, you don't have to go through the hoops you have to go through to do a C1D1 room and deal with all that bullshit. And I've heard from multiple people that have some experience with hydrocarbons that, and also in the hash world, that like the safety... Like, you know, you were obviously talking about how something can go much more wrong, let's <laughs> yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. But like when they come in and check for safety, it's so much easier to get like approved for having a wash lab as opposed to like. Exactly. Yeah. Especially uh, Colorado, you know, the regulations are insane right here. So yeah, the permits involved, the the building regulations and all that good stuff. It's way, it's on a different level. It's way harder to get a, a C1D1 room than it is a Cold room for washing. Right. Yep. But Oleo does both. Yep, we do. And you've been involved with both mm-hmm. sides. So what can you tell us about the company? Honestly, Oleo is a small company compared to, I feel like people think we're bigger than we are. We have 20 something employees. I have an assistant that helps me with the rosin, but for 90% of the stuff, it's just me pressing everything that's coming out of these grow rooms. Tukes and Brad, they are washing all day in a cold room, hand washing they really care about what they do. Like the people that are making hash for Oleo, we all love the hash. I wouldn't want to be involved in a company where I can't go home and smoke that product. I would feel like I'm not, you know, truly happy, but I love smoking Oleo stuff. I like going there. I love working with the people that I do. I've met so many amazing people 
through this job. It's been awesome. I know that big companies like this, I say big companies, but like legal company, we do get hate, you know, from the black market guys and stuff like that. But these guys that make the hash really do care about it. Our grow team, that's what they like to do. Like they're passionate about the grow. We all talk, we're all linked together. We can't have good hash without talking to the grow team, without it has to be so intertwined to have that feel of a single source when it's going into a corporate business. And that's where I feel like we shine. We're not big enough to where it's just outgrown itself and where we just can't look after these things at all anymore. But it's small enough to where it still feels like a family. So I really enjoy that. Yeah, and it sounds like a good situation to be in Yep, um, for both of you guys. You know, because... I think that's one of the things that you hear that is really lacking in the industry is like a good environment Mm -hmm. and culture, maybe if you want to call it. No, I think it's so important to go into a place that you work and enjoy what you're doing. Like you said earlier, it's, I am so blessed to be going in there and doing what I love. I know I could be making more money, you know, probably doing something else or doing something for myself, but these guys are truly amazing. I love our hash. We have great genetics. We're always pumping out, you know, New strains, I feel like personally, we don't feel like we've reached a plateau. I feel like we're always trying to improve. And that's that's where you're going to help everyone else improve. You know what I mean? We're all in this together. All these other companies are doing so many great things. We're all feeding off each other. We're all, you know, growing as a, a community, a hash community. It's really great. Yeah. So when you moved over from doing the BHO to the Rosin, You said that it was almost like relearning everything. It was completely, it was a new experience to me. I I was not involved really in making bubble hash back in the day. I had little experience with making dry sift and stuff like that. Uh, I had some sift screens I was working with, but I had never got to wash something back in the day. I didn't really want to screw something up with my own personal nugs and then have it not yield anything. I knew that cured material probably wasn't going to be the best to try to learn on because it wasn't going to achieve the results I was really after. But once we started pressing and I was learning the bubble hash side and stuff like that, I just felt like it was a whole new world to me that I was very interested in all over again. And it was so linked to the grow that I was noticing even some of these plants that looked amazing and would, you know, they would blast well for BHO. It was like, why aren't they washing? What is it about the plant? What is it about the trike? head like what is it about the whole separation behind this that's making certain things wash and that opened up a whole new world to me pretty much and what are some of the things that you learned about the tricycle oh man it's a mystery is what i've learned so i feel like at this point it's so it's common knowledge for hash makers what they're looking for that skinny stock that bulbous nice head with the, the thin membrane, the thin cuticle. I feel like everyone kind of knows that, but it's like finding these genetics and making new crosses to fit that, you know, that profile from terpenes we already like, but we know aren't washers. What what can we mix with certain things to have a similar profile to make it a washer? It's like, it's going to be about genetics in the next few years. I guarantee you the amount of washers that we're going to see is it going to increase tenfold in my at least maybe this is just wishful thinking to me, but I want to see some, you know, crazy lemon turps that I'm able to wash that don't yield stinkers. You know, I don't want to see one or two percenters, you know what I mean? But it happens. It's the trike is the trike head itself. Ah, they just vary so much between genetics and cultivars. And it's just 
it's interesting to see side by side in a room where you treat everything the same, how things perform. It is, that's what makes me, you know, excited to get up in the morning, see how a new strain did, see if little changes in a room, tiny changes to the environment help the trikes. Did a little bit of stress actually improve the yield? Did the wrong type of stress decrease the yield? Did it, you know what I mean? Do you want the plants in perfect harmony? Do you want that early harvest or are you harvesting too early and you're not getting the most out of your plant? You're not getting the most terpene rich profile that you could be getting out of your plant and you're not taking it to the perfect ripeness just because you're worried about the color of your hash. There's so many things that I don't know, they just amaze me. I feel like a beginner still, even though I'm working with this plant every single day, I don't even feel like we've touched the surface. And you brought up a word that I'm always fond of talking about, which is ripeness. Yeah. Do you feel that there's a perfect ripeness, even though there's such a variation in the trichomes? That's the thing. It all depends on the strain. You can't have a room full of 20 different strains and all think they're going to be ready at the same time. That's There's just no way. But yeah, I believe there's a ripeness of the plant. I believe there's a point where the trikes... They're degrading. People that take them a little bit too long, if you look at those things pruning up, I don't think that's, you know, the best either. But I also don't think if you're pulling everything, well, that shit's completely clear that you're getting the most out of that. And I know if I'm having to take multiple dabs that it probably could have gone a little bit longer, even though that hash looks absolutely beautiful. You know what I mean? I'm not a color whore. You know what I mean? I'll try some hash that I think is a little bit darker. And sometimes that is the tastiest stuff compared to something that's white. And I mean, it can be both. You can have something that's completely white that somebody took, you know, to a good day and the taste is on point. Everything's on point and the color's on point. I'm not saying that, but. And also genetic variation. Exactly. There's just just beautiful. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's certain strains that just come out fucking amazing every time. So you started out with the hair straightener. Yeah, the hair straightener on a little vice press. We we learned a technique. I got to shout out this guy, Skelly. He taught us how to wash on a, in a machine and press on a hair straightener. Back in the day, the first time I ever pressed on a straightener, this kid, John, brought a straightener over and we pressed a little bit of hash in, I think a nug or two. That was the first time I had ever seen or tried rosin. So shout out to John. But the very first time pressing actual bubble hash in the lab on the straightener, it was insane to me. That was a totally different experience because I really didn't have good luck using it at home, but we had it on a little vice system, a little wooden, we called it the primitive press. It was a little vice. I just kind of used some hand pressure. I would like hang on to that thing. And I think it was actually perfect. I was the lightest guy at the lab, so I couldn't like break this little wooden (laughs) vice. Yeah, it was just enough where I would hear it creaking, but I wouldn't like snap the damn thing. And yeah, we would press these tiny little three, four gram pucks. I would press each one six times almost. Like it would take me all day just to get through 200 grams of ice water hash. Nowadays, I can do that in 45 minutes. Like it's ridiculous. But yeah, learning on the hair straightener really helped me feel the hash, like feel hands-on with it, like see the greasiness, feel the greasiness, you know, while you're packing these coffee filters. I wasn't even packing rosin bags back in the day. These were folded coffee filters and I would like grease these little patties up and stuff. Sometimes the hash would even grease. It was yielding nothing sometimes. Just working on little technique before we got the actual, the peer pressure press. Yeah. It's always funny to hear how early experiences, (laughs) even though as you call it, maybe we're primitive compared to some of the 
technology even five years you know later plays a role into being able how to like learn to use this more advanced technology in a better way exactly so we first got the peer pressure which i am in love with now i'll rep them to the fullest for the first few weeks i'd say i was having such i, w- I had mastered the hair straightener tech or i thought at the time how long did you do that oh my god we did that at the lab for almost a year i want to say I, don't, I honestly wish i was better at timeline but i did that for a long time like and I would it was just, just you it was just me yeah tukes washing me pressing right. every day like just as a team just and yep. at that point how much material you know i know you, this is this is varied because back in the day we weren't doing nearly as much like nowadays he's i mean they're these guys are washing just two washers hand washing they, they could go through 30 pounds of material easily in a day like that's every day five days a week like type shit and 30 pound, just to be clear, is the fresh frozen. Fresh frozen white. I mean, certain days will vary. Certain days are doing 14 to 20,000 grams, you know, a little bit less. But usually, I mean, 30 pounds, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's like an average. I mean, they'll probably get mad at me and be like, we're doing more. But I know they do more on certain days. But but yeah, we weren't going through nearly that much at a, that time. I'd say we were doing like, God, 10 to 20 pounds a day back then. But I was just trying to squish it all in a hair straightener. And it was just, it got to a point where it was just not working with me collecting the different grades of it, like visually and stuff like that too. It just took some time. So so after that year, then that's when you got the peer pressure. Yep. We got the peer pressure. We tr- I think we tried out the peer pressure and one other one. I honestly don't even remember what the press was called. But yeah, we got the peer pressure. And I, for the first few weeks, was like not really feeling it. I was, I felt like connected to the hair straightener. Right, you're used to it. I was used to it, but once I got the little tech dialed down and I got a different bagging technique set up, the peer pressure, it just became the tool. Like I was like, there's no way I'm going back to pressing with a hair straightener and this taking all day to do this. So what was that change in the bagging technique? It was just going from coffee filters to actual rosin bags, figuring out the pressure, not ramping it up too high. I was getting blowouts the first few times. So I started double bagging the bags. Okay. I know I have a certain technique that some people don't like using smaller. I use smaller bags to press at a time. So some of these guys will press tons at a time. And it, I mean, there's stuff still comes out great, but I like quality control. I feel like with a small bag, I can see exactly how it's coming out. The hash in the very center of the bag isn't taking as long to make its way through more hash right. to escape as rosin. That's just my thought. Yeah. And there's just a few other things that I, that's just the way I like to do it. And there's guys that have totally different techniques out there that their stuff is still coming out beautiful as well. But yeah, having that machine and being able to press that much more at a time quickly was a game changer for sure. So you said there's a few more things outside of using the smaller bag that you like to do. Mm-hmm. What are those few things? Um, I know there's just certain techniques that people like to do. I know directional flow is one of them. I don't really directional flow. I do a quick press. I don't like to let my stuff sit on a plate where it's coming in contact on the sides for even longer than a minute usually. I don't like anything to butter on the plates. I don't even like the rosin to come out where it looks foamy or opaque. Even if it looks like very blonde or very white in color, you'll notice a lot of people's hash comes out. They're not impurities by any means, but they're, it's more foamy. It's got a lot more bubbles inside of it. And that to me is something carrying over from the grow. Personally, I think if you're having really clean, clear rosin, even if it's a little darker, you can tell that transparency. I think that's the cleanliness of the grow carrying over. Just 
other than directional flow, I know certain people that just don't like to cure certain ways that I do, even know that I cold cure and keep stuff as just fresh press. People don't understand that. They just see me posting all the jams and stuff, and they're like, why is this guy heat curing? There's just certain things like that, but I don't hate on anybody else's techniques, and everyone's got kind of their own way to press their hash. So Yeah, and I mean, going back to the point that you were talking about earlier in the difference between doing the butane versus the hash, like when you said hands-on, this is kind of what I take, right? It's like everybody has their own little take on it. Exactly. And everybody has their own way of doing it. And I don't think there's a right and wrong. Everybody, it also depends like what you're trying to achieve as well. Yep. So that's cool. I think it's always cool to hear how people are working. So let's talk about the grow a little. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you guys all try to work as a team. And if you could talk more about kind of that relationship and how you guys inform each other's work. Yeah, I honestly think, I don't want to put myself as third tier, but the way I look at the whole setup is I really am. I can only work with what Tukes and Brad have washed. Their techniques really do matter, but what they're washing really comes from the grow. So I look at it as like steps. Uh, If the grow's not on point, the wash can't be on point, what I'm pressing can't be on point. So that is the single most important thing to any real hash operation is the grow. It's like so obvious. And I I say that over and over again, the starting material, when people ask me questions about why their stuff's coming out a certain way, it's all in the starting material. It's so basic and everyone says it, but there is no way to get good hash from mediocre bud. And if we're not dialed in on the grow and everyone's not talking about what's going on, it just puts us at a loss because we're not washing anything with issues. I'm not going to squish something that has bugs in it and that shit be in the rosin because that's coming back to me. I've set myself up. I have this page. I just wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that with my own shit. I wouldn't, I don't like to do that. So if any issues go on in the grow, it has to be transparent. If there's anything that needs looking at, we all need to come together and we need to talk about these things. We need to make sure every plant is getting the love it deserves. It's so hard on a commercial scale to get the love on every single plant like these home growers get. That home grown shit, I mean, it presses beautifully and you can tell that every single plant got just a little bit more attention than these giant warehouses that have thousands and thousands of plants. But it's hard to do at that scale. It's so hard to do. There's a fine line, I feel like, where you get too big for your own britches and you get to the point where you're just kind of, you know, trying to make sure everything's healthy instead of making sure everything is perfect for hash making and making sure no one's touching the nugs. No one's going in there and adding extra chemicals. It's a less is more type thing sometimes. You can use simple newts and you don't need a lot of these extra bud hardeners and all this stuff. And it's actually better for the trike sometimes. It's more about condition. It's about environment and your soil or your cocoa being healthy. It's about your veg being so on point. You got to have the healthiest plants and veg Right. For them to be healthy and flower, it's the single most important thing. And I couldn't stress that enough, honestly. I wish I knew more personally about growing. I feel like I'm a beginner when it comes to growing. But when I moved here, the my main focus was learning about plants. Growing them, growing different strains, seeing how certain things washed and didn't wash, even though I did the same exact regimen to right. the one right next to it. And just seeing how genetics played a huge factor. Yeah, And you got to be in there. And the more you know and care about the plants, the more it's going to reflect on your hash making, in my opinion. 
you could squish somebody else's garden all day and have never had experience. In my opinion, it kind of shows. And I don't know. It's just carrying everything over is very difficult. And when something yields that 7% and it comes out golden and it's perfectly clear and stuff like that, there's no better feeling than knowing that you grew that. And that's, I think that's what it's all about, really. I always like taking an extra moment to thank our Patreon community again for allowing us to produce episode 19 with Roz and Ryan and give a special shout out to some of our biggest contributors, including Lost Roots Hash in Oklahoma, Kevin from Lifted Indina, James, the casual cultivator, Mario in Illinois, Hash Makers Union 73 in Ohio, American Hash Makers based out of Washington, Totem Solventless in California, the homie Nate, the homie Daniel in Connecticut, Kyle, the full melt fiend, Alexander in Oklahoma, and Alexander in Michigan, the homie Big C, our friend Gendo420, Monchu Gardens based out of Denver, and the homies from Mission Melts out of Massachusetts. We thank you all, and now back to the episode. And you mentioned earlier off air about weekly meetings that you guys have. Yep. What are some of the things that you guys discuss? Yeah, so we pretty much just come together as a group and talk about how the rooms are doing, schedule the harvests, talk about how the hash is coming out from the previous rooms that we've been working on. We harvest every single week. Okay. We are pretty much going over the genetics we want to see in the future, everything really. What we want to focus on with events coming up like that, they really involve us with trying to reach out to the people and do really cool events, art collabs. We really like having creative things on the boxes like that and switching it up all the time like that. There's a lot of things we talk about in the meetings, honestly. Yeah, no, that's cool. And it's cool that you all kind of work together to make that happen, you know? So can you tell us more specifically about the grow? You mentioned you're harvesting every week. Mm -hmm. How big is the grow? Are there multiple rooms? Yep. So we just recently acquired the room right next to us again. So our grow is literally right next door to the lab. And we also acquired the warehouse right next to our old grow. So we've pretty much almost doubled in size, actually over a little bit over doubled in size. We went from about 500 plants to a little over a thousand plants. Okay. We have, I want to say, I'm going to get this wrong and the growers are going to hate me, but I want to say we have nine or 10 rooms total, I believe five in each. We're just doing cocoa right now, double-endeds and 315s as well. We like that supplemental and stuff. The 315s kill it. Double-endeds have the history of doing great for a long time. So just to clarify well. for somebody that may not be as familiar, you're talking about lights. Yes, yes. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Double-ended lights and stuff. I was just kind of talking about our setup. Yeah. Um, no, but yeah. So HPSs and the 315s, the... Uh, God, I... Literally drawing a blank of what they're actually called and stuff like that. But having supplemental lighting and the correct lighting is crucial too. So no LEDs for you guys yet? Not yet and stuff, but we've we've talked about it and stuff. The LEDs have crushed. I did a little LED closet grow back in the day and it seemed to love it. But I know they're expensive and they're great for electricity and stuff like that. But yeah, we're running honestly a pretty simple setup. It's just bottled newts and stuff like that. We really are messing with too much living soil right now. It's, it's cocoa. It's very simple. We've kind of gone the less is better route. When we used to be growing way back in the day, when we first started for solventless, we were growing more for weight, not really trike production. And growing for trikes is a completely different animal. You are really, you're looking for things that you weren't when you're growing for weight. Right. All these extra bud hardeners and everything like that sometimes aren't the answer. And 
Yeah, it's honestly a pretty simple setup. Did I say how many rooms we had? We had about we got about ten rooms now. We okay. went from five to ten rooms. You talked about the spaces. I don't think about the rooms. So yeah, there's ten rooms now. We used to harvest every two weeks, so now we're harvesting every single week. Okay. And the harvest is another thing that's super crucial. Having teams that know how to deal with your plants and are destroying everything you've worked for is probably the most important thing. I've noticed a lot of these companies that are running bigger commercial grows, they don't give a shit how they're cutting these things down. And it really shows when they go to make extracts out of it, when you go to wash that stuff, it's a disaster. You can be destroying almost everything you worked for by grabbing all these things, chopping them up, running them through trimmers, doing all that stuff. So we have our own harvest team. They don't grab anything by the bud. It's all grabbed by the stem, chopped off into golf ball sized pieces. Pretty simple stuff, honestly, right into the freezer. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about wanting to process material within a certain time frame once it is in the freezer. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me why that is? Yeah, it's just uh, aging, degradation of the plant. It's not really going to you know, degrade too fast in the freezer, you got a lot more time than if you were just to leave it out or something like that, obviously. Right. But our opinion is that the quicker you get to it, the better. It's just the fresher, the better. We obviously, we let it freeze for 24 hours after we harvest, but I mean, they are washing it very quickly right after that. I'm pressing it as soon as it's done with testing, which lasts about two days. Sending it in for testing and all that stuff is a whole nother nightmare. But uh, yeah, we run everything within the week. He's on top of it. These guys that wash, crank this shit out. I don't think people realize how much work they're putting in in a five-day work week. I see these people posting about like crushing it for these events and stuff like that. They don't realize these guys do this every week, way more. I mean, washing 35, 40 pounds a day is no joke. Yeah, that's <laughs> a lot of material, man. And for a long time, you said it was just two of you, one of you doing the rosin and then one, one of you doing the washing. And exactly. Another, another washer. Yep. Yep. So yeah, Tukes has got an assistant. He's the man. Brad is the man. He'll do washes even if Tukes, you know, he'll do them by himself if Tukes isn't available or whatever. I've finally, after four years, have gotten a rosin assistant. So if I'm sick, Adam will fill in for me. He's great. It's been awesome to have somebody that can help me prep up all these bags, especially with us expanding like we have. And me still being the only one that presses the majority of it, I really had to figure out, all right, like the timing for everything like this is, it's going to be, I'm going to have to either cram or figure out if somebody's going to help me. And that's pretty much what it's come down to is I definitely need a hand. So it's been great. Yeah. Like you said, they've expanded the grows. Yep. So I'm assuming you're going to have to expand, you know, your department. Exactly. So I was trying to figure out, you know, if I needed somebody full time or if we could have somebody help me at least. And it's actually been with just us two. We're still able to handle everything with doubling production to only have two people pressing and two people washing. I honestly think that's pretty impressive. And since you're so kind of tight knit with your grower, can you do you know anything about like their background or... Oh uh, yeah, our grower, head grower RJ, another little, I'm going to name drop a few times here because he might listen, I don't know. But yeah, he's got his own background for years. I think he's been growing for like 20 years or something like that. Like I said, we've learned as a group all coming together what's going to work for hash. He is amazing at producing large yields and stuff like that. I'm sure that's what he was used to for years and years, growing terpy strains with large yields. Something you would want to smoke in a joint, something you would want to you know, take a nice bong rip of. Right. But I think this past few years of growing for trikes and stuff like that, we've all been, you know, wondering what, what these little things are that's going to improve the hash. But yeah, it's a small group 
as well. I think there's five or six growers in both the warehouses total. These are all passionate guys that they work hard. Growing is not an easy task. Everyone knows that there's a lot of physical labor that goes into putting together these rooms. Yeah, they're great guys. And it's they make my job easy, literally. Like, if this wasn't coming out good, I have bad weeks. Like, nothing is perfect. <laughs> when the rooms are struggling a little bit more than others, we can clearly see in the hash. And that's why we have these meetings and talk about how things are coming out. So about, talk about why these things happened. Talk about what we can do in the future to do more experiments. Can we have a little section of the grow where it's only living soil and compare that to the cocoa? Can we do all these things? And that's what I'm excited about for the future. And at what point do they, I guess, feel that the trichomes are ready since we talked about the maturity earlier? So there is a fine line between being able to pick things when you think certain strains are ready and this whole commercial grow. It's a struggle, honestly. When you have, I mean, we have almost 40 strains we're working with at any given time. That's a lot. That is a lot for anybody to take care of at a time. But putting together strains that are very similar in their aging, you know, certain strains go for, you know, a certain amount of weeks. Having ones that are similar definitely help. If you have some stuff that's only going, you know, day 60 and they're all in the same room, that's obviously going to be great. You got stuff, hazes and everything that could go freaking 12 weeks. And you got them in there with things that are perfect at day 60. That's usually where you run into the issues. Right. In a commercial setting, it's hard not to run into those issues. We like to pull around day 60. It's just for our perpetual system when we're harvesting like that. We know as growers, we know as hash makers that certain strains could easily go longer. That's where the internal dilemma is. And that's why we want to, in the future, have certain rooms where... We can put, you know, the 12 weekers in there all together and try not to throw stuff off too much, but that comes with time. We know that, but right now we're just working with what we got and I don't feel like we're pulling too early. Stuff still comes out with amber trikes. Stuff is still coming out nice golden color instead of being that pure white where it may be beautiful. You can tell it was pulled a little early. It's such a fine line. Yeah. No, yeah, it's interesting. It's always interesting to me to hear people talk about when they harvest, especially specifically for hash. Yep. You know, and earlier you you were talking about even in the pressing, you could see the translation of what you feel like is, you know, good growing, clean practices and see that in regards to like the bubbles you were talking about. Mm -hmm. What do you feel that that's about? Like, what are you having to do right in the grow for it to translate into the resin like that? It really comes down to so many things. I think environment plays a massive factor, how much the plants are stressed out, the types of newts you're using, whether those are clean, whether you flushed them properly is a giant factor. A flush is so important. Your soil, if your soil's, you know, healthy. God, it's crazy to say just one thing, but it's like so many little factors. That's what makes this game so crazy and makes it, You know, interesting. I feel like I'm always learning something. I always want to feel like we can improve. And I feel like that's the future of hash is everyone learning from everybody and hash as a whole and the plants as a whole being better. I think growing practices are going to only get better. People are going to realize that all these extras may not be, you know, needed. It might just be more important to have a clean space, a great clean environment, healthy plants, nice living soil, and 
good genetics, obviously, that biggest factor. Great genetics. But and you've touched upon genetics a few times, so let's talk about them a little. You know, you've brought up some of the things you guys have been running. Can you kind of give us more of like an extensive list of some of the strengths? You said up to forty and some of the things that you've seen and maybe learned over the last few years seeing some of these newer genetics. Of course, yeah. I mean, shout out to the the breeders now. I feel like hash strains are becoming more of a priority. Even on the seed packs, you'll see these guys posting like, this does, you know, so well for hash. This does, you know, certain people are making notes of this now. And it's really become more about hash than I think flower yield in the recent years. There's some guys I could list names all day. We use a lot of like Oni stuff, Harry Palms, Canarado, Exotics. Like I could keep going on. There's way more that are killing it than that. But well, um, give us another few because those are some of the big ones that, you know, a lot of the other people mentioned, but maybe some companies that you don't feel get mentioned a lot. Well, let's see another one, uh, Swamp Boys. Okay. Maybe. God, I wish I was better at knowing some of these other breeders just off the top of my head right now. There's, I feel like there's so many that could be mentioned, but genetics as a whole, I think are going to be the main focus the next few years, creating strains that in Previously, we haven't been able to really wash, finding the right mixtures, making them washers. I think there's certain things you just cross. There's certain strains. If you cross on with GMO, it instantly just skyrockets in yield. It's insane. There's certain strains that just love to be washed. There's, God, it's all about the trike. It's all about the trike head, the shape. It's all about, and it does come down to the grow too. You can have the same genetics side by side. And if somebody doesn't know what they're doing in a grow, you're clearly going to see that when you go to wash it and press it. I'm not saying that, but just having, you could have a great grower with two different cultivars right next to each other. And the one that's, you know, washing and getting 6% and the one that's washing and getting 2%, you did the same exact thing too. There are certain plants that just are hash plants. And I think finding those... Everyone's just going to be trying to find those in the next few years. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the process of how you guys do that? Uh, yeah. So most of the time, the first few times we run phenos, everything gets treated the same. So we want to see how everything compares in that same environment. We don't get to run as many phenos as we'd like at a time. We're just kind of a smaller grow. If we could run 50 phenos at a time, I'm sure we would. The process would be more extensive, but um, that's where you really find the winners. You really got to sift through those phenos. And the, the winner is not going to be in the first five or 10. I, if you find something you really like, I'm sure that was part luck and everything like that. But I'm sure if you cracked open 100, there might be another one you like way more than that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I've always heard population is a big it, it's, thing it's, when it comes to selecting. I really find that's important, but it's all about kind of we're always making do with what we got. So we pop 10 and we're going to find within the 10, usually at least one, hopefully. Hopefully. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we'll pop 10. If nobody likes it, if the growers don't like it, Tukes doesn't like it. I don't like pressing it. And the BHO guys, they don't like blasting it. There's no point in keeping that thing around. And that happens frequently. Sometimes you get stinkers. We'll go through, pop them. If it grows well for the grower, we check that off a list. If it yields well in water hash, that's a huge factor. So that's what we're looking for in the pheno hunt. If it washes well. And has a terp. It could wash 6%. But if it smells like bland nothing, there's no point in keeping that thing around at all. We want standout terps. We want good yields. And we want it to be at least decent for the growers to be able to grow. If it's a 
problem plant and we think that it's going to cause problems for the other plants, that's also another reason for it not to be around. Right. There's just no sense in it ruining something else. And just by to, problem, you mean like... There are certain genetics out there that are predisposed to certain problems. Right. Even though, you know what I mean? You can bring something new into the grow. If it's predisposed to problems, we don't want it around. You know what I mean? Something that could turn hermaphrodite, for example. Something or? that could herm. Something that is predisposed to PM. Something's predisposed to anything that, you know, Colorado is susceptible to getting. So that's another factor that will just axe it completely. Once we go around, we got to taste them all. We got to try them all. That's another factor. And also how the post-press consistencies come out. Certain strains love to be just kept as that fresh press. And then there's certain phenos we get that we learn if we jam this thing up, it might release a little bit more of a terpene that we didn't get earlier. And those are also notes that we'll take. So there's so many different little factors that will go into a little pheno hunt. But in the future, we're probably going to do some bigger pheno hunts. But for now... We just like to keep them small and really only keep the ones that everyone enjoys. Yeah, it's cool to hear how you guys go through the process and how they get filtered out, essentially. I'm curious, like, how often do new strains or phenos get added to, like, part of the collection of the stuff that's being grown? We've been doing it more and more frequently as the grows come along. We used to keep, like, a staple of, like, 12 or 13 and bring one on, like, maybe once a month. I think lately we're really trying to fill in a lot of voids of flavor profiles that we're missing and get rid of a lot of stuff that's mediocre. I say we have 40 strains. We're not using all 40 at the time, but there's probably 20 of those 40 that we've already decided we're not going to do again. You know what I mean? But at one time, there's quite a bit. We, God, just in the past few weeks have added two or three strains. So. Certain times it's just busier than others. Certain times we're really like, you know what? We need some heavy gas or like we need a chem. We need something grapey. We've got too much straw guava right now. We'll talk about that in, in the meetings and stuff. Right. Yeah. Cool. So can you kind of walk us through your day? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm sure it takes a lot of prep before you even get to the press. Yeah. Most of the day is prepping up stuff for the press. The way I press nowadays, I can just... I'm just going through material. Honestly, the press doesn't feel like anything, especially because I'm hanging out with the guys that are working up in our post-production area. So we usually have a podcast on. I usually am talking to them throughout the day. So while I'm pressing, my day goes by pretty quick. I'll come in in the morning. I'll turn all the machinery on and stuff like that. The press, just make sure the compressor is on it, which it usually is. I will have stuff from the previous day that I had finished at the end of the day, jars and stuff like that that needs to be cured, heated up, stuff like that. All the other batches from the previous day are either in the fridge or getting cold cured, just sitting out in mm-hmm. room temperature. I'll check on those, just make sure those are good. Heat cure the stuff from the previous day. Check on everything testing-wise, make sure just kind of what's come in ice wax that I can squish that day. See how the rosin is doing. As far as packaging, if anything's like being left behind, I'll just let the packaging team know. I need to package this up or whatever. That's very rare. They're usually pretty on it. So my day is mostly focused on seeing what ice hash is passed for the testing. Then I can go in and prep the ice hash up. So I'll go in to the freezers next door where the cold room is and have to transfer that stuff over. So we transfer it over to the oleo side. I'll go over and pretty much essentially prep up one or two batches at a time inside of a freezer. So I'll have just a little deep freezer. I'll open it up. And a food tray fits perfectly right on top in there. So I don't work in a cold room while I'm prepping up the ice ash, but I am working on top of a cold tray. Yeah, I'll prep up a batch or two at a time, bring it right up to the front 
where everyone's, you know, post processing the BHO stuff and everyone's working on tags and metric crap, (laughs) sending out shit for testing. My press is right up there with everybody. So I press a few batches, only usually takes me an hour or two. And then I'll go back, prep a one or two more batches. Usually I'll do two to four batches of ice hash a day. Okay. And those batches range anywhere from 100 grams of ice hash to 500 grams of ice hash in each batch. It's a big variance. Yep. So I press anywhere from 400 to 800 grams sometimes a day, which is quite a bit of rosin. Yeah, Yeah. it is. And what do you feel are some of the things that you've learned from pressing so much resin? Ah, just that every strain is different. Everyone has their preferences. I get so many messages like, hey, you need to put out more of this. And then I'll get just as many messages saying you need to put out the opposite. You need to do more jam, do this stuff. Keeping everybody happy is a huge task for me. It's obviously impossible to keep everybody happy, but I want to really provide options for people. Like if you really only like that fresh press, I want there to be fresh press at the dispensary for you to go grab. You know what I mean? But it's really hard. And we've gotten into solving this pens now too. But honestly, it's just working with the hash day in and day out you get a feel for how it's going to press before you even press it. I can pack up bags and know just by how greasy it feels in the bag in my hands, how it's going to press. I can tell when something's going to suck. Right. Yeah. And sometimes it does. And sometimes I don't post pictures of it because it's like not everything is coming out beautiful. There's failures in this game. Like, And I know everybody thinks everything's coming out perfect, but yeah, nothing, you know, nothing's perfect. You're going to get some stinkers in the strains and stuff, but. Just being able to work with it day in and day out, I've just gotten so comfortable handling the hash. I used to have stuff stick to my hands or like feel like I wasn't collecting it a certain way or feel like I wasn't doing things efficiently. And now it's so second nature that I could do it with my eyes closed and I feel the hash. You know what I mean? It's, right. And I think that is probably the biggest thing that's changed since the beginning. It's just since working with all this stuff, is just feeling comfortable with the hash and knowing what to do with it knowing what strains don't like to be heat cured, knowing what strains I should keep as, you know, should make jam, like everything like that. There's so much that goes into it. Yeah. So obviously consistencies is something that I want to talk to you about because you guys do toy with a good amount of them. Mm -hmm. And like you said, provide people different options. So, you know, going back to like when you were doing the hair straightener, right? What was your goal then outside of just producing rosin so back in the hair straightener days we were only making coins i was honestly following the examples of hash makers i was looking up to mainly all greens this company all greens here i really looked up to them and their hash making i wanted to make something similar so i just thought those coins look so beautiful that we you know kind of just took that example as well i would visually separate the grades of hash just based on smell and appearance and really just kind of like looking at them on the parchment, even though there was like six of them lined up. Yeah. I would press little bags like six times, like for 20 seconds each. It was ridiculous. I'd have to turn that hair straightener on a hundred times a day. I don't know how that thing didn't break. I don't know. But we were only focusing on keeping everything cold. I wanted to press it, gram it out. I would gram everything out too. Like I would press it and gram it, make the coins put it right into the fridge as soon as possible. And that was our focus at the time. We just wanted to carry over the fresh frozen into the cold room, into the wash. And then I wanted to be the only portion that got a little bit of heat and then right back into the cold. You know, 
That was my theory. But as we started seeing more batters and as I started seeing other people play with it, natural curiosity, I just want to make and play with hash. That's what I love to do. That's what I've loved to do for years and years. So once I saw people messing with that, that was my natural reaction was, I need to try this. I want to do this with our hash and see what happens. So that's where messing with consistency came from. Just seeing what was possible with rosin, seeing if I could make that rosin sauce, honestly. I was just so entranced with trying to make a diamond or trying to separate THC at that time that that was the next thing that I really wanted to do. And then from there came the jar tech. From there, it's mostly been focusing on cold cure batters and then pens and then trying to do all of it so that everybody could stay happy. It's That was probably the hardest part. Right. Yep. And you know, so you have like your own self-curiosity, but you're also working for someone. Mm-hmm. So how open were they to you messing with things that obviously is a value to the company? So I am super lucky to be part of a company that was very open with me trying to improve that. That's my overall goal. I'm messing with things because I want to experiment, but I want to smoke good hash. I don't want to make something that I wouldn't smoke. So I think they knew that I was trying to improve the hash, trying new things, getting the name out there, even having new techniques that you're experimenting with and having people talk about them. That's exposure for the company. I'm sure they didn't hate that. And they were so supportive of R&D and making certain days out of the week specifically for trying new things that I felt no pressure of messing up a small batch. Sometimes I would, I, and I would only mess with small batches at first because I was scared of messing up somebody else's, you know, production. Right. That was a worry of mine. I don't want to be that guy. So them reassuring me, telling me that there's, you know, there's no pressure. If you can make something awesome, go for it. And day by day, I would just come to them and be like, look at what I made today. Like, look, I was, I'm genuinely excited most days at the lab. Like I, I'm sure the guys back there got tired of me being like, check this out. Like, this is so crazy. But yeah, they were supportive from day one. They never gave me issues with trying new things. And once I was able to achieve new consistencies and stuff, they were nothing but, you know, praising. And that makes you feel good when you work for a larger company where you feel like you might be, you know, disposable or something like that. It's a, right. it's a good job security, I guess. No, that's cool, though. I mean, it's a good relationship. Like I said before, it sounds like that you guys have, you know, so one couldn't be without the other almost to a certain degree. And, you know, having that kind of spirit of wanting to push things or improve things is something that I don't think like everybody has. So can you talk about some of these processes that you are working on now? Some of these consistencies that you're putting out and how you're achieving them? Oh, yeah. I feel like at this point, it's kind of common knowledge, but yeah, you can Heat cure rosin, you can cold cure rosin. Honestly, it, you're, you are messing with the terpene profiles a bit, but you're not destroying them like we once thought. There was this big taboo when everyone first started with the jar tech that we were completely destroying the terpenes. Anything messing with the rosin, even with your hands, was destroying the terpenes, all this stuff. And I think that once that, this wasn't really found out to be true, that this was more of a change in consistency and a altering of the terpenes and not a destroying of them that it became a little bit more acceptable. And so we started, you know what, let's do portion of each batch, see how it sells. And people really enjoyed it. I personally enjoy it. I sometimes don't remember to put my rosin back in the fridge when I'm done. It'll butter up 
Within a few days, that butter does not smell or taste the same as that fresh pressed shatter that when I put in the jar, I am mad at myself. <laughs> like if I can leave a gram of jam out for a few days and I don't have to worry about it, that's awesome. I can still smoke a terpy ass gram. It didn't lose anything. In my opinion, that's, you know, that's a plus for me. I understand some people don't want their stuff heated. The classic coins, keep it in the fridge. Don't even let that stuff butter. Like if you're good about the fridge, Get the classic rosin. You can keep that stuff in the fridge. It'll stay shattered for a while till it turns into that nice goop before it turns into a butter that's like one of my favorites. The in-between. That in-between where it's just starting to get soft and it's just like, you can really mix it up in your jar. And from there, the cold cures. It's really all such personal preference. That's where I work on things mostly is I like to try new things. It's just a natural evolution of hash to want to up your game and see if you can accomplish some of the things that you're seeing other people doing with your hash and really just play with it. It's just a natural curiosity. It's fun too. Sometimes it's just fun to try new things with hash and see what happens. But this whole jam process, when it first started and it was so taboo, what really interested me, honestly, I think it was with a lot of other people as well, was just trying to replicate a live resin consistency and actually grow those diamonds in a way where you're not making them naturally, mechanically separating them on a press. It just feels more natural to see something grow in a jar. It's just cool. Yeah, I was just into it. I love dabbing everything. And sometimes I feel like I'm less picky than the people that I'm making the hash for. Like if you have a few grams in front of me, I'll dab anything. I don't care if it's a little bit dry. I don't care if it's a jam and it's been heated. And I love a cold cure too. So when I say I'm really just trying to make something for everybody, that's really what it comes down to. If I had a personal preference, that's probably what I would just make. And I would say, you know what, just screw it. If you guys don't like it, don't get it. But there's just too many options out there and there's it's too fun not to. So if I have a batch of straw nana, you can bet that some of it's put in the fridge and some of it's turned into a beautiful jam and someone can enjoy that, keep it out on their desk for a week and not worry about that thing drying up or doing anything like that. Yeah, I honestly think uh, cold cure is kind of more like what's in right now. It really does take a good grow and a, a really terpy hash to produce wet, great cold cure that, that stays wet. You know what I mean? It, genetics as well. I'm genetics as well. But you know what I mean? It's really got to have that terp content in there for it to stay wet like that for a while just sitting out. And I know earlier you said, maybe I misheard you, but you leave the cold cure actually at room temp? Yep, just room temp. So what I call cold cure too, and I know what a lot of other people call cold cure as well, is never like actually sitting in like a freezer or anything like that. Our classic rosin is actually more of a cold cure if you want something to sit in the fridge for its entire life. But the cold cure essentially is just done in a room temp environment. The terpenes will pool on top as it kind of, they'll naturally separate. You stir them into itself. It becomes more of a batter than a butter. And you can stir it up a few more days after, and it'll really keep its wetness. You can just leave it out, too. That's so, what I enjoy about it. Yeah, so essentially in that process, it almost seems like as you move it around, the terpenes, I don't know that they're releasing or they're like coming to the surface, mm -hmm. but how would you explain that process since you do it so much? Yeah, it's all about having that lid on the top of the jar. If you just had that thing opened, they would you would never get that turp pooling, really. But since you're creating a little pressurized environment inside that jar, they'll separate, but they actually won't dissipate. Yeah, when you start back into itself, it becomes like the whole thing moist again. But as you know, if you leave a gram out and it becomes drier, essentially, 
you're losing the terpenes. They're evaporating out of the jar. So to keep that inside the jar, to whip it back around inside there, to keep it cold, you don't need any extra heat. I think it's beneficial. You know, I really enjoy cold cure batters. Yeah, and shelf life, I think, is pretty good on it, right? Yep, yeah, it's great. it seems to be great. I never personally keep a jar for too, too long, but I've actually seen jars sit for a while and they'll repool up. And yeah, you'll see a nice little layer on top of there again in like a week or two. So it's pretty neat. Yeah, and you know, on the jams, I've seen you post many times that it's not really like a time-based scientific thing. It's more of like a eye-based, visual, artistic thing. It really is. So I have, my oven is right next to my press. So as I'm pressing throughout the day, I can simply give a glance over and see how the jars are doing. I only turn the timer on just so I can hear something go off and reset it. It's never actually that I'm following the time. I can have 60 gram batches, an identical ball jar, and set a timer, and one could be done 40 minutes before the other. You know what I mean? It's right. crazy how some of them can take 30 minutes, some of them can take an hour and a half. Like, it really is crazy. And we're working with larger batches. If you're working with an ounce of rosin and stuff, it's going to melt down fairly quickly. Okay. When you have 150 to 200 grams in a giant mason jar, it takes a little bit for right. it to heat up and get down to a consistency where you can put it on the mat and crash out the THCA and all that good stuff. Yeah. Cool. So I'm curious, what is one of the kind of biggest questions that you get since you do tend to be somebody on social media who does seem to answer a lot of questions and, you know, really interact with his following? I would say by far the most asked question is the whole time temp pressure thing. I get that probably five times a day, either through DM or through the comments or something like that. There's always kids that are, you know, what temp was this pressed at for how long and stuff like that. And when you tell them and then they'll respond and be like, I tried that. My stuff still comes out. I honestly can tell you that time, temperature and pressure are not nearly as important for the hash rosin process as you would think. It's because it's hash rosin that it's coming out so well. It's all about the starting material of what you're squishing. A lot of these kids that ask me this stuff are pressing flowers and they don't realize the process that goes that we go through to be able to squish this kind of rosin. I've squished things at, you know, 170 degrees and squished them at around 210 degrees. And I can tell you right now, the color almost comes out the same. It's all in how sappy the rosin comes out, how fast it's flowing out might affect how stable it is at the end. It might come out more of a sap than a shatter like it would at, you know, low, low temps. Right. And it's going to affect your yield, but it actually doesn't affect how the rosin comes out. Um, the way we get these beautiful clean drips and everything is because the ice hash is so clean. You can press at low temps and it's definitely going to help a little bit with it not heating enough to butter on a press. And it's going to help just become a little bit more transparent, but it never will affect the color or anything like that like these kids think it does. And pressure. The only real thing about pressure when it comes to hash rosin is starting off low to avoid a blowout. A blowout is super common with hash rosin because when you heat that ice hash up, it becomes like, it almost becomes like a clay at first. And then it becomes so soft that it just wants to move around inside the bag. If you have a little bit hanging outside of the press or anything like that, people can attest to this. It will just shoot out of the seams of that bag. I don't care if it's double bagged. Sometimes if you just ramp the pressure up to full pressure, that shit will explode out the bag sometimes. Like it's, it's no fun. That's why I started double bagging actually to avoid that. But 
the whole pressure thing, I ramp up. I start low. As it starts dripping, I'll increase. As it drips more, I'll increase. I never just ramp up full pressure. That might be more important to me than temperature. Temperature is important because obviously you don't want to burn the hash or your rosin. You don't want to be squishing at 220 degrees and that stuff is spitting out. But I'm seeing steam on some of these people's presses and I'm just like, this cannot be good. I would prefer a low temp squish if possible, if the material allows for it. Certain materials more melty than others. If it's greasy hash, I'm going to decrease the temperature and I'm going to only squish for less than a minute because I don't want anything to heat up on the plates enough to even start to butter. I will rather double press it, get a second quality rosin out of it and that. But easily the most asked question is the time temp pressure thing. It's, I get it constantly. If I could just post that in my bio, I probably would. Let's just take this, <laughs> let's take this clip and you can post it. Yeah, yeah, we'll take this and I'll, I'll, this will be my answer. But yeah, I think people focus more on the tech of the rosin and that is the last thing they should be worried about. It's all about the material. And I understand some people can't just go to the dispensary and get ice hash to go press. It's expensive, but that's how we make what we do. Right. So not being a hash maker, I don't know a lot about the equipment. I mean, obviously, rosin presses, I've seen them, been around them. Are they pretty straightforward? When you start in the solventless process, it really goes back to making the ice hash. That's where more of the equipment's going to come into play. You're going to need an RO system. If you don't want to buy tons of bags of ice, you got to have your own ice system, which is fed off the RO. It's all got to be clean. The cold room is very essential if you're not, you know, outside in the frigid cold. Right. Just having that environment stuff, that's going to be where your, most of your cost comes in. You can make ice hash. The washing part of it can be done for cheap. The bags are, you know, a little bit pricey, but there are ways to make ice hash without crazy equipment. But nowadays, like peer pressure setups and uh, I know Bubble Man's got his stuff and everyone's got their own equipment. In the future, I think it's only going to get better and better. It's going to get cleaner. It's like food grade, lab grade type stuff. The equipment is stepping up, the freeze dryers to help aid in the drying of hash, stuff like that. The presses are only going to become more competitive, I believe, in the future. But as far as overall equipment versus BHO, it's not really in that realm just yet. But there are a few things that are essential for making good rosin. In my opinion, I would have a little list of things that could really aid in your production. And if you could give us a little bit of that list? I honestly think RO is the most important, having a cold environment to wash in. Those are my, if I could tell you, uh, people will get into debate of hand washing versus machine washing. I've seen stuff that comes out of machines look really good. It's just that extra love and quality control that goes in with the hand wash that I prefer. But as far as a list, I wouldn't even put certain things that people may think are necessities on that list. We learned how to make rosin on a amazing rosin on a hair straightener. So as much as I love the press, you don't need it for a little home setup if you want to start making great hash at home. It's amazing to have, and there's tons of cheaper options. You don't need to go for that $8,000 you know, machine, but I think you can make great hash for very cheap, and you don't really need too much. You just need a clean source of water, some ice, and some great starting material. Yeah, and you've mentioned the RO a couple of times. I'm assuming that's what you guys are running. Yep, uh, just reverse osmosis everything. The bags, the actual separation bags that you're using to separate the microns of the bubble hash, that's probably going to be, you know, one of your only other essential, essential items. Right. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, why is it specifically that you guys like the RO water 
I mean, there. I'm assuming there are other methods to filter water. Yeah, there is. I know some people just use like the sediment and a like the one other two other filters. We just like using RO. We test our water every single day. We they test their cubes every day. It's just a clean process, and that's what we're used to at the lab. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're making your own ice yep. in house. Yep. For that type of production. How many machines are you guys running out of curiosity? The ice makers? Yeah. We only have one ice maker right now. We're probably going to have to get another one here soon. I'm not exactly sure how many hundreds of pounds of, of ice it makes a day, but right now it's working for us. So Yeah. Yeah, but we only have one right now. We got four freeze dryers. We got two bins for washing, and that's pretty much it. We got a small little setup. And do you play any role in the drying process, the freeze drying process? I get to help Tukes and the boys sometimes if they have a big old batch and stuff. Sometimes we'll get a third person. I'll go into the cold room and wash too. And I enjoy that. It's good to do something different instead of just pressing all day, every day. Most of the time in the morning, they will get the batches out that are finished drying. They will sieve them and they get them in the jars before I even have to mess with them. They really take care of everything on that side for me. The okay. freeze jars are right next to the cold room, so they can just bring out the hash that they collected, put it into the freeze dryer, and it's pretty much, you know, yeah. all there set up. And being the primary rosin handler, essentially, have you seen any differences as they've learned to use the freeze dryer machines? I've seen differences since the beginning of our whole hash making experience from learning how to improve things in the grow. That was our biggest concern at first. And then trying new things in the wash. Tukes is always trying different techs. He's just like me. He's a passionate guy. He wants to improve the hash. He's always on the search for that full melt. You know what I mean? He's not happy unless that shit melts like water. Like he, ah, it's all because of these steps that go into the rosin. And we've seen improvements since the beginning. Hash making is an artisanal craft. And as with anything that's handmade, every unique individual has their unique touch, which is in part what we talk about on the show quite a bit, and part of what excites me about hash. I personally think everyone should find what works for them, especially when it comes to the tools that they use for their craft. But that's not to say that you can't learn from others, especially if they're some of the top hash makers in the world. And a lot of the ones that I've spoken to trust and use rosin evolution bags. And there's a reason for that. They make a high quality product. Everyone talks about hating blowouts. One of the most frustrating parts of making rosin are blowouts because blowouts mean wasted material, wasted time, wasted effort, and an overall loss for everyone. So being able to know that you can rely on a tool like your rosin bags from Rosin Evolution is priceless in my opinion. They are a proven company, they have proven products, and as I've mentioned before, they make great rosin bags obviously, but they also make very reasonably priced wash bags that are micron accurate and full mesh, allowing more water to pass through, putting less strain on your back. So visit them at rosinevolution.com or on their Instagram, rosinevolution100, that's the number 100, because when you support them, you're supporting us. But you do need to use the discount code in order for them to show us love. And our discount code has changed from THI to THI710. So THI710 saves you 5% on 
all of Rosin Evolution's gear, which is important because we want you to save money. It helps the podcast and it supports a small U.S. business like Rosin Evolution. So again, our savings code has changed to THI, standing for the Hashish in 710 altogether, no spaces in between. That saves you 5%. Again, check out the best bags in the game, rosinevolution.com or rosinevolution100 on Instagram. You know, I find it interesting. You brought it up earlier about working at the airport. Like I said to the other people, I kind of dig around Instagram usually before talking to people to kind of get an idea about them since there's no real information outside of that, you know. But you seem to be working kind of in like the aviation world. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, but also correlate that to, you know, did any of that almost mechanical type work translate well into this industry? I think more so being detail-oriented and the cleanliness aspect of it. When I was doing, I moved from Florida from repainting and refinishing planes to get into the hash industry. It took me a while, but, you know, having to paint a plane is a detailed process. You can't have anything dirty. We have to have a clean room. You have to have all these similarities to hash making. And I think having that that detail-oriented mindset and not cutting corners, that was the biggest help. There's all these little things that you want to just get done quick, but you know in the end result won't look as good. That's what it's pretty much all about. It's the same exact thing. It's putting in the work to make sure the end result is perfect and that the customer, the hash consumer, is happy with everything. Yeah, and we spoke a little earlier about how sometimes that's a challenge for you working within the company and you always want the product to be the best representation of you, even though you said you were like the third, you know, tier. I consider myself, right. you know, the third person, but I'm, I'm essentially making the product that is being sold the most at our company. So, and I've put my name on this now. I have a account and I have all this stuff because I put my name behind the product. So I don't want anything to come out mediocre. I want everything to be, I want somebody to take a dab of our hash and feel a certain way. You know what I mean? So just knowing that I might be making somebody's day better or relaxing them or just knowing that I'm producing something that other people are enjoying or that they use to make their day better is kind of, it trips me out sometimes when I actually stop to think about it. Like, yeah, I made hash today, but how much of this hash is going out to somebody that could like really benefit from going home and taking a nice dab and forgetting about maybe some bullshit that other girl was going on in their lives or Right, yeah, no, it it affects people's lives in ways that you don't ever imagine. Yeah, and that sometimes that I can't see, but it's cool for people to reach out to me and let them know that they enjoyed something or just say thank you for responding to a comment and stuff like that. That stuff makes my day. So that's what I want to keep doing more of in the future. Yeah, and again, I mentioned that earlier. You, You seem to be pretty big on that. I know you can't respond to every DM or respond to every comment you know, on your pictures or your posts, but where does that come from? You know, that kind of motivation to not only be open about what you're doing, but answer the same question 500 times. I honestly think that it came from me being that kid at one point and trying to reach out to people and certain people not responding. And the very few that did, it makes an impact on you. You want to be that guy that these kids can reach out to. And even if you have answered it a few times, be like, all right, I understand that this kid probably hasn't read through everything or seen, you know, the previous ones. It gets really frustrating at times, 
But if it's a new follower and you know that he hasn't seen all these previous posts and this kid may be just getting into hash for the first time, if you can make a positive influence or give them an answer where they're like, oh, thank you for at least replying to me. That makes a big difference to me and it makes a big difference to them, I feel like. And I cannot answer everybody's. It really has gotten overwhelming at this point. But just the support and everything like that, I don't feel any less fortunate than I did the very first day I started at Olio. I am always feeling this gratitude for everyone that hits me up. So I really do appreciate it. Even if I can't get back to everybody, I want to be one of the few people out here in the community that is open to teaching. I know there's other guys out here that are doing the same thing and I love it. I totally support these guys, Ken Wall and all these guys doing classes and everything like that is so cool to me. And I think we're all helping each other. And I don't look at it like this closed loop of information like certain hash makers do out here or everywhere, honestly. I hate to say it, but I just think I have a different outlook on the whole thing. I think it's only going to improve everyone's hash. It already has in the past few years with everybody being so open, and it's only going to get better. Yeah, you know, I think you mentioned earlier techniques, and as I talk about with everybody, genetics, all that stuff is going to improve, you know, and so it'll be curious to see what happens and this kind of open source sharing of information and obviously a platform on social media like Instagram. It might not always be Instagram, right? But it'll be something where people can see what other people are working on. And I think that feels, I mean, that pushes everybody to kind of push each other and push themselves to do something. It's friendly competition. It's honestly, it's seeing what other people are doing, talking to them, you know, doing that for yourself, seeing everyone's hash just kind of like step up, step up. This past few years has been insane for the solventless game. I've seen things just take leaps and bounds and there's just companies coming out of the woodwork, little single source gardens coming out of the woodwork that, man, I wish I could try all their stuff. It's looking amazing. I mean, I'm stuck in my own little, you know, corner here. I feel kind of introverted from some of these other guys out here. I stick to myself and do my own thing. But if they're listening, just please know, like I support what they're doing and it's only making everything better. There's some fire out there and I wish I could try it all. (laughs) Yeah, and you also kind of are doing your own thing, a little almost consulting type work. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I just feel like that's the future of me branching out and doing my own thing while still supporting Olio. I think they are very supportive and they know that if I'm out there teaching people and providing a positive outlook on this whole hash community and giving them the props too, that it's not going to hurt them. I just want to teach. I like teaching people how to make hash. I think that there's companies out there that they have the money, but they don't have the time for trial and error and having somebody that, you know, has the experience that really benefits them. And I don't mind going out to do it. I would, you know, I like teaching people about hash just for free on DMs anyway. So I might as well make something out of it and really set something up for the future just in case something happens. Or if, you know, Olio might be going to multiple states and to be able to go out there and teach, you know, our own company that would be a dream of mine too. So it's like... Yeah, no, it's cool. I mean, it's it's always good to keep your options open, but at the same time, you're doing something that you like and I mean, it's something that nobody can really take away from you. Yep. You know, so that's cool. So yeah, so there's something that I've really been wanting to talk about that we haven't and that's the testing. I've seen you post some of the testing that you guys have done pre and post jam and I think that's one of the cool things about working in kind of like the rec market and having the ability to do testing, you know? So what have you seen and what have you learned from that? Yeah, I agree. Being able to send out multiple tests for 
batches and stuff like that, even to multiple labs and just to see the variants and everything like that has been so cool. The terpene stuff is really something I was interested in just because I was worried about destroying terpenes. I was heating this stuff up and the very first batch we finished, I wanted to send a terpene test out to essentially see how badly they were degraded. I was really expecting us to drop from like a 15% terp, you know, total terpene rosin to like 5% or something like that. Okay. So when we got those results back, I feel like sometimes I'm learning with people. I don't post things because I'm, you know, this is what I've done and so on. So I'm posting things sometimes to ask other people, like, here's what happened. Can somebody explain this to me? Right. Kind of, I'm no scientist. I feel like an idiot sometimes when it's coming time to talk about the actual scientific breakdown of terpenes and cannabinoids and all that stuff. Yeah. But to have a jar with less fats in it. And I mean, I try to mix up the samples as well as possible. I have a lot of people hitting me up and being like, you took that terpene test with just the top layer and all this stuff. It's like, no, I mixed that thing well, up. Like good, yeah. Exactly. And yeah, just seeing the results was really interesting. So I posted that jam result and I got so many DMs, so many comments and so many different answers and explanations why. Less fats in the jar so that just the ratios were higher. We were transforming the terps, you know, more monoterpenes, all this stuff. But I mean, what it comes down to is a consistency that I could leave on the desk for a while. It looked beautiful. The terpene results showed that it wasn't, they weren't destroyed. Right. So in all in all, that seemed like success to me. So after that, the next thing to do is do more tests. I send in the next batch again, an increase in terpenes. They had changed slightly. Some of them had disappeared, but it's almost like others had increased. And I know terpenes don't come out of thin air. I totally realize that. I understand that in a gram of rosin, there can only be a certain percentage of terpenes. It's not going to just increase because you heated something up. What I really wanted was just an explanation. I thought it was a cool source of discussion. And just to be able to see the differences in you send out a fresh press, it's this, you know, sends out testing at this certain percentage. Right. You send out the butter that it became two days later from drying out with no lid on just as an experiment. Half of that. You test some batter. It tests out around the same as the fresh press. You test some jam. It comes out 2% more than the fresh press trying to figure out why it's it's just really fun to be able to send in stuff to labs and experiment like yeah, that and, and get actual, actual results. results. Yeah. yeah. And I take everything that the lab does with a grain of salt. I don't think these labs are 100% accurate. I don't think any of us do. We get THC tests back and they say plus or minus 5%. Well, that's not very, that's not very accurate. Right. You're either telling me it's 25% or you're telling me, you know, I was like, all right. But I mean, just being able to see it in front of your eyes is really cool. And just to be able to post it for a source of discussion. I think that was my main focus when I did that. Yeah, no, that's cool. And one of the things that was most baffling to me about seeing those results, and I looked at them kind of closely, was, and this may go back to what you said about labs right now, but the idea of there being terpenes pre-jam at 0.00%, and then post-jam, they're coming in at 0.02%. You know, and like you said, they don't come out of thin air, but... According to the test. Yep. There's something changing within certain terpenes turning into something else. It's, it's very interesting to me, especially I don't have a background in that. Right. So it's just, it's so interesting to see. Yeah, I, no, I agree. I'm always I, excited I when I'm like, getting a terp test back or just a THC percent back. Sometimes it's, it's honestly baffling to me that some of this rosin could come out so 
high percent in THC, I'm like 90%. What the hell is going on here? <laughs> well, cool, man. I know we've been hanging out a while. I really appreciate you sitting down and, and chit-chatting with me. Of course, man. Um, I appreciate you. Yeah, I got a few questions that I'll just kind of shoot off. They're all over the spectrum. So okay, let's talk about your car, man. All uh, right. <laughs> me, going through the Instagram, uh, I see plenty of the car. And today, funny enough, when we met up, I knew it was you just from seeing your car, you know. So just tell us, I guess what it means to you and you know why do you enjoy it so much i've always been a uh, a car guy i was raised near racetrack my dad was a stock car driver in florida that's it was the birthplace of speed daytona beach i've always just been around cars for my entire life and i mean i've had some beaters growing up i never had a nice car growing up i've Moved here with the little SUV that was like a soccer mom mobile. And uh, just being able to kind of work for something that I've wanted for so long, I've it's been amazing, honestly. I'm, I'm obsessed with that little thing. <laughs> I used to be a BMW guy, but with the snow and stuff around here, I was looking for some all-wheel drive, and I test drove that little Audi TT. Yeah. And yeah, I fell in love with it, and yep, and planning on doing a bunch of shit to it. So Cool. I'm curious, you know, going back way back to when you were, blasting open blasting bho then working in the lab and you told me like you were looking to make it as clean as you could at that time looking back how clean do you think that material could have been actually oh man we had no idea where we were getting it from most of the time so that was the problem i think if we knew where we were getting it from we probably wouldn't have blasted we probably would have just smoked it and stuff but honestly we were really obsessed with even with a small little setup like that, we were really obsessed with trying to make it as clean as possible, purging it until it was clean as possible. We were only using head stash nugs. So it wasn't like we were blasting any trim at that time or right. anything like that. We were really trying to replicate what we were seeing these big guys do on Instagram. So we were trying to make golden little slabs, you know, yeah. clarity counts type shit, you know? Okay, cool. If you're not smoking on oleo hash, What's some of your other favorite hashes smoke in Denver? Colorado? Some actual companies, All Greens and Dab Logic make great stuff. I still support 710 and Laser Cat stuff is great. But most of the hash that I'm smoking, if it's not Oleo, is just going to be personal gardens from friends. That's where I think all the love goes. These are little gardens. When you wash and press this stuff, you can clearly see that it's head and shoulders above some of these bigger companies. Yeah. And... Oh man, I, you can taste the love that goes into these plants, the hash that it makes. So that's usually my favorite to smoke if I'm not smoking on our stuff. It's just local Colorado small gardens from friends. Yeah, and that's something we kind of discussed is like the ability to scale that up. And, you know, even being with a pretty relatively small craft company like Oleo, at what point do you feel scaling up is almost a disservice to the resin? Wow. It's almost like the bigger you get, the less attention each plant is going to get. It's a balance. It's really hard to, you know, treat a thousand plant grow like a six light that's in your basement when it's just you in there all the time. When you're seeing how everything's going, you almost know every plant individually. It's something that you're just not able to replicate on a, a large scale. We're really trying to do the best we can with that. We're trying to bring that basement grow vibe into a large-scale environment where we can still keep everything clean, still keep everything, uh, the environment on point while we're attending to each plant like it's an individual plant. That's where you're going to get the cleanliness. That's where you don't run into issues when you know what every single plant needs and you can actually adjust 
feeding to certain strains, to light schedule, to knowing what exactly everything needs. That's where it really is going to shine in your hash. It's hard, man. It's hard not to become too commercial and where you need all these different people that don't have the same passion that you might when your own single source grow. It's, it's a fine, fine balance. And we're still figuring it out too. Yeah, cool. I mean, I think that's pretty fair and honest, you know, assessment. So I appreciate that. Since you enjoy your car so much, can you give people who maybe are visiting Colorado a spot that you like to take it, like drive some nice scenery around here? Yeah, if you're coming to visit Denver, Boulder is not too far away. It's 30, 40 minutes away. And you can travel up to the Flatirons and just go drive around there. And I mean, you get a beautiful view of Boulder and you can actually see to Denver. That's usually the cruise spot. If I'm not going down south or anything, that's uh, I would honestly say, yeah, Boulder. You can come visit a dispensary during the day and then just go right right over there and go smoke a joint on the mountains. And yeah. it's beautiful. And since you brought it up, what dispensary you recommend? So we have a company that kind of works with Oleo. I would suggest it's called Higher Grade. There's a med store and a rec store. You can get most of the freshest drops there. If you are looking for other dispensaries, I would give the Oleo page a follow on Instagram, dabolio710. You can message them. They'll let you know the drops. And we also post drop information on the page all the time for the freshest drops of rosin and stuff like that. So. Cool. No, yeah, it's nice to keep people informed. No, for sure. For sure. It's really hard to. Everyone hits me up for the sales. I do not do anything with sales. So. Yeah, you hit a polio. Yep. Pressing rosin. Yep, exactly. I'm pressing all day and working on teaching some people. So I've been super busy. Well, cool. This is kind of a, I've asked various people this. I'm always just curious on people's take. What is hash to you? Hash to me is, God, I don't want to be super cheesy and be like, hash is my life, but hash really kind of is my life right now. But hash to me is something I loved growing up cannabis in an even cleaner form. It's something that is ever-changing. We're learning more about it. We are, it's been involved in human culture for thousands of years. We've been smoking hash. It's ingrained in us. Yeah, I still feel excited about it like a little kid on Christmas. Yeah, hash is life, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what to say. And is all are all types of ways of, in this case, isolating it or extracting it for you hash? Is it all hash? BHO hash? It is. It's all hash. hash. It's, a, it's all personal preference. It's all what you like. It's all, you know, what you want it to be. If you like smoking just bubble and you just, you know, you want that full melt, more power to you. If you like those giant crystals, smoke them up. Make sure they're clean. <laughs> Dab them. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm a rosin guy now. So I just, yeah, it's all hash to me, though. I don't discriminate. Cool. Last question. Somebody you'd like to see me interview on the show? Down the line. Oh, man. Let's see here. My buddy, it's actually Tuxa's buddy too, Pete Gardens. I don't even know if I, I don't want to say a name or anything on here, but God, he makes some beautiful hash too. There's not too many. Like I said, I'm kind of introverted around here. As far as who I'm talking to, I know you had Sam on. Sam's an awesome guy. The girls in green that just took second in uh, Spain. They're awesome. Alice, she's a great, great girl. There's a few people I could give you a little list probably after the show. <laughs> cool. No, that sounds good. I'm always no, curious yeah, to see her. Like, yeah, I need to like actually stop and think about it. There's, I know there's so many people I'm not giving props to that I need to. I just want to say thank you to all the OGs that have really paved the way. I used to watch Bubble Man's videos on YouTube. And yeah, just thank you to everybody that's you know pushing me forward. And I love what everyone's doing. Cool, man. Well, again, super appreciative of your time. Oh, thank you so um, much. <laughs> 
Is there anything else you wanted to say? Uh, no, yeah. I just really wanted to say thank you for everyone that supports me, supports Olio. Give Olio's page a follow and give Olio Grow a follow. They are the ones behind all the magic. So they deserve a lot more recognition than they get. And yeah, just the guys that are behind the scenes making my job easy. Again, this was Ryan, a.k.a. Rosin Ryan. You can follow him on Instagram at Rosin.Ryan. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you guys later. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.